Right, let's take, let's take our Bibles tonight and turn to Lamentations chapter 4. If you're visiting with us tonight, uh, you may not have ever heard a sermon from the book of Lamentations, but uh, it, or maybe if you've not been with us on Sunday nights, we have been studying through this book together uh, here at our church. We typically uh, study all the way through books of the Bible, considering them in their context as God gave them, and try to take them as a unit so that we might rightly understand them and give Moses some very real uh, difficulties with regard to language and form and structure. It's very uh, structured. It's very stylized. There's a lot of lofty language. Uh, it's very structured in terms of the way that uh, the, the poet and the author puts these poems together. And, and, and that structure is to help us interpret and theologically understand these works uh, in, in a way that is helpful and fitting um, we're going we're gonna to consider tonight all of Lamentations 4, uh, the fourth lament or the fourth poem. We took all of the first and all of the second together uh, as single entities, but then we divided up the third lament, the third poem, chapter 3, because of its length, so that we could give careful attention as it is the theological center of this, uh, of this work, of this compilation or composition of poems um, in, in, in the fourth lament tonight, we're going to see many of the same themes that were present in one and two. Uh, many of the, the same things that are being lamented and recounted there, the destruction of Israel, the reason that destruction has come, namely there's the sin of the Israelites, the agent of that destruction being God himself has done this, the reason for the destruction, that is that they have sinned against God and transgressed his word, and so they are deserving of this just judgment of God. But we've been seeing as these poems have built the glimmer of hope that remains in the people of God. And that's very important to us. For all of the difficulty of this ver these verses, we can identify with suffering and with tragedy, even if not on a global scale or a national scale, though we have certainly experienced some of that to be sure, all of us understand what it is to experience great tragedy and suffering and difficulty in our lives personally or in our families, um, wh whatever situation that is. And so it is very important for us to learn how to walk through those sufferings well, how to honor God in the midst of those sufferings, and where and how we can find hope for the suffering that is ahead. And that's part of what we've seen is, as it's been building all the way up to chapter 3, just to remind you, after understanding that we are the reason this has come, you know, the Israelites, uh, the, the author then identifying with them and including himself among them and suffering as a part of the Israelites, he begins to reflect on then the God who has brought this judgment and his justice in doing so. Reflecting upon God's justice leads to a reflection on God's mercy, his nature, his character. And in remembering God's character, if you remember the language then of chapter 3, in God there may yet be hope. And so the Israelites then turn in some way to repent of their sins and to plead with God for mercy. God, enough. We have, we, we have been brought to the bottom. We can go no further down into the pit. And while it may seem, for the most the majority of chapter 4, that we just return to the lamenting of the destruction, um, it's, it's not a complete uh, 
digression here, it actually continues to move because what we'll find then as we get to the end of chapter 4, that this hope is renewed and that this hope is realized for God has heard their pleas, the God in whom they looked or to whom they looked and in whom they had hope that he would relent, that he has heard their pleas and he has declared the end of their tragedy, that, that there is and there yet remains hope in God doesn't mean all their problems are going to be fixed. It doesn't mean all of the tragedy and all of the destruction is going to disappear. All the sadness is going to go immediately, just like that. that that's not the testimony. But it, but it does continue to build this glimmer of hope. It fans that flame just a bit in their lives and helps us to see that in God, yes, there is hope. That though his judgments may last for the night, though the mourning and the sadness may last for the night, that, that there's joy that comes in the morning, that, that, that his anger is but for a moment, but his mercy lasts for a lifetime, his favor, his kindness. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight as we consider Lamentations chapter 4. One more reminder, now as we return to um, away from chapter 3 to chapter 4, we're going to return to the normal, typical acrostic form and structure that we saw in chapters 1 and 2. So this, this Hebrew poetic form, where they take each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, there's 22 of them, and they ascribe one line or one stanza to each of those letters, and each, the next stanza or the next line begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there are 22 verses then in chapter 4 because of this Hebrew acrostic form. You may say, well, what's the point of that Hebrew acrostic? Well, the point is because they're trying to express their mourning and their pain and their loss and their suffering and their hope in God in its fullness, in its completeness, from A to Z, as it were, um, something along those lines. So let's look at Lamentations chapter 4. Before we read it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, we thank you for your word, even the difficult portions. And God, we, we admit to you tonight that Lamentations is a very difficult book, but we believe that all of your word is given for the good of your people and for your glory. For edification and for instruction in righteousness, for conviction of sin. And so God, we pray that now as we read, you would open this book for us. You would reveal the truth of Christ and the gospel to us. And that your word would go forth into our hearts and that it would have its work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Lamentations chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The, ch the children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their 
bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. Of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Again, returning to the grave difficulty of this time for the children of Israel, for Jerusalem, as they've now been overthrown by the Babylonians. They've been laid bare. They've been sieged and utterly destroyed. The the picture that we get from these laments is that of a city in utter ruins. Their buildings and their temples toppled uh, over to the ground. Boulders and stones just laying in ash heaps. Bodies everywhere. No food to eat. No water to drink. Destruction. um, Famine. uh, Thirst. Hunger. uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a bleak sight. Let me ask you, in order to help us kind of understand where we now are in Lamentations chapter 4, have you ever dealt with a struggle or um, maybe a difficult discussion with someone or a, a difficulty in your family and you've kind of talked about it and talked about it and talked around it and come at it from different angles and, and thought about it and thought about it and thought about it until all of a sudden the, all of the eloquence is gone, all, all of the pretense is gone, and, and there just becomes like a, a brutal normality to the discussion. You just say it as it is. You just lay it out there in plain terms. There, there's no hiding it, there's no covering up, there's no making it sound better than it is. You just, you just put it out there with a painful sort of plainness. That's where you are now in Lamentations 4. The tone of this, although the the... the The things being covered, the themes, the destruction, uh, what's being reported is the same as what we saw in Lamentations 1 and 2 and even in chapter 3. 
what we now find is the tone is very different. It doesn't have the same sort of poetic eloquence. It doesn't have um, the same uh, sort of drive and feel as those verses. It, it, it's very normal. It, it's very honest. It's almost as if it's exhausted. They have recounted from A to Z for multiple laments now, with Lamentations 3 having three verses for every uh, letter of the Hebrew alphabet in this form. They have recounted now from A to Z, from beginning to end, over and over and over, the, the destruction and the devastation that they have experienced under the judgment of God. And now as they recount it once more, there's just a bitter plainness to it. And, and friends, just very practically at the very outset, I think there is a practical lesson there for us. That this is where sin leads. This is where disobedience gets us. That ultimately, we will get to the point in our lives when we cannot talk about it in any other terms than simply what it is and the destruction that it's brought and the devastation that we feel and man, you, you can see that. Notice the use of the same, some of the same uh, sort of literary devices here that we saw previously in chapters 1 and 2. One being that of tragic reversal. Notice in chapter 4 verse 1 how the gold has now grown dim. The, the, the pure gold has changed. Remember, that's, that's ironic because gold can't tarnish. Pure gold cannot tarnish. But it can when left in ruins, be covered in dust and, and be dimmed if it's not polished and clean. That's the imagery here. So what once shined brightly and, and was a spectacle to behold, the, the, the beautiful, uh, radiant gold has now been covered in dust and laid bare. Notice the holy stones, that is the, the buildings of the temple where God's people came to worship. They now, rather than being beautifully structured and put into their place and accomplishing their function for the worship of God's people. They now lay scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, who were worth their weight in fine gold, are now regarded as earthen pots. They've been, they've been, they've been made to nothing. Their value has been diminished greatly. The daughters of his people have become cruel. That is, those daughters who once were compassionate and kind, like the ostriches in the wilderness, they have become cruel. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. Right? Where they once found nourishment from their mothers, now they, as is reflected here, we've seen elsewhere where they are dying on their nursing mother's breast. There there's no, there's, seems to be hopeless. There's nothing for them. There's nothing to sustain them. Now, even more so, we see that not only are they dying on their mother's breast, they're dying at their mother's hands. That's a hard picture for us to, 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 to really grasp, I think, and to bear. It's pretty brutal, right? Friends, what's going on here is an honest recollection as we near the end of this book of the suffering that they endured. And that's point number one, verses one to ten, is the suffering that these people endured. But I want us to move very quickly out of those verses to verses 11 to 16. Because as we've seen, as we have seen, there's been a progression in the understanding of the people that were under this devastation and judgment. There's, there's been a progression in their knowledge of God and what he was doing. And at least we've seen that they clearly now understand both that God has been the agent of destruction 
and that they have deserved what they have received. No matter how hard it is for us, and people say all the time when they look into the Old Testament, why was there so much bloodshed? Why was there so much destruction? And how can we believe in a God that would have allowed and even committed many of those atrocities? And my answer to them is, while we don't have all of the answers about why that would happen, we don't understand all of what God does. But what it does do is when we see the depth of the devastation, we understand the seriousness of the sin that brought it. When, when you look back in the Old Testament and we see the, 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 the absolute flattening of God's enemies and those that profaned his name and his word, those that rebelled against him, the judgment brought against sin, we, we may have all sorts of questions about whether or not that's just and fair and right and whether or not God would do those things, but the reality is those are the wrong questions, What it should help us to see and understand is that sin and its consequences are serious. And that the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the perfection of God, that they stand in utter offense, having been profaned by the sin of his people. And that's that's where you get point number two. Not only is this a recounting of the suffering endured, what we find is an explanation of sin judged. So that we see that this building theme, that that they're becoming aware that this is God's judgment against their sin. Look at verses 11 to 16. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. So now here we are in chapter 4, calling it like it is. This brutal plainness, what do they say? All of this has come because God has let his wrath unfold. He has opened the vent completely and his wrath against sin is being poured out. Friends, let me ask you this. In light of what we see in Jerusalem on account of sin and the wrath of God against it, does this this make you wonder what Jesus endured on the cross? Does this make you wonder how painful it must have been for Jesus Christ, God Almighty, came in the form of a man, standing in the place of men, bearing God's full, unmitigated wrath against our sins. Wow! What a difficult and painful thing that must have been for Christ. He gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Now, why did he do this? Look at the recollection here, 12 to 16. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem, and yet they have. This was on account of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets, so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. People cried, away unclean at them, do not touch. And so they became fugitives and wanderers. The people said among the nations, they will stay with us no longer. And the Lord himself has scattered them and will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Woe. See, the lens is now being focused in Jerusalem on account of God's judgment. What is it that he's judging? Not only the sins, sort of generally speaking, in Israel... Notice here that the ones that are really being focused on are the leaders of God's people. The prophets that he's given to them that are no longer willing to speak the word to his people. 
the priests that he's put over them that no longer uh, minister in their midst with righteousness and with justice. And what a warning. I have to tell you that as an elder, as a leader in the church, as, as someone who is given the charge of speaking God's words to God's people, in some ways this is a very sobering reality. It is because of their absolute, utter disobedience, transgression, and sin that this judgment has come. And two of our elders are seated here tonight. And, and brothers, let's pay careful attention to what, what the Word of God teaches about the responsibility to serve in our office well in accord with the Word of God and the danger of not doing so. I would be remiss if I did not point that out and make this warning as we look and consider that the sin was being judged, that they had brought this upon themselves in all of its fury. God has poured out his hot anger because of the sins of her priests, the sins of her prophets, those that forsook their office before God and their position over his people. Thirdly, I want you to consider how the leadership was forsaken. There is one unique theme in Lamentations 4 that we have not seen prior. And that is found in 17 to 20 as it recounts the capture of their king. Okay, The capture of their king. Look at verse 17. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching we watched for a nation who could not save, which could not save They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered for our end had come. So so they see the end. It's not only the physical destruction. They now feel unsafe and pressed down on account of their enemies. The enemies that have overtaken them, that are going to kill them. The Babylonians, the Edomites, those those that have come against them. They now realize that their days have been numbered. At least that's how it may seem to them. Look at what they say. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the heavens, verse 19. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. Why? Look, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed. That's the king. The king that God placed over them to look after them and protect them and preserve them and give this charge. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow. We shall live among the nations. And it is this king under whose shadow they hope to find refuge that has now been taken captive. He has now been plundered. His house has now been filleted open and its contents spilled. And all of the people of his land now put in great danger because of sin. Not only the sin of the prophets and the priests, not only the sin of the people generally, but the sin of the king himself. This unwillingness to perform his duties before God. And friends, there is a, a, a very careful picture that's being painted here, and I don't, I don't want you to miss it. It has always been understood that God placed over his people, particularly in the Old Testament, in, in, in these periods of redemptive history, prophets and priests, and kings. The prophets were those who spoke on God's behalf to the people. They delivered the word of God to the people. The priests were those that ministered on behalf of the people before God. They went before God and they stood between the righteous judge and the sinful judged. 
And then there were the kings, those leaders that were given to preserve and protect and ensure their longevity and their solidarity as a nation and as a people. And friends, what we are being told is that all of their prophets and all of their priests and their kings have failed and have fallen under the righteous judgments of God. But praise God that he has appointed unto us another prophet, priest, and king, hasn't he? As we have begun even to see in Hebrews, studying about the Lord Jesus Christ, as we continue to build in anticipation of the celebration of his birth, let us be mindful of what we celebrate, that what the kings of men and the prophets and priests of old were unable to do, Jesus has perfectly done. He never failed to deliver God's word perfectly to God's people. He never fails in doing so. He never has failed or will fail in going before God on our behalf, in representing us before God and mitigating and taking God's wrath against our sin upon himself. He will never fail as our prophet. He will never fail as our priest. And he will never cease to be our king. Remember what we read even this morning and last week from Isaiah and from Micah that of his kingdom and the establishment of his throne to rule with peace and righteousness and judgment, there will be no end. Praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ who has come to do what the prophets of men and the priests of men and the kings that we once had could not and did not and would not ever do. Praise God for our great prophet and priest and king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who ministers in all of those offices with righteousness and justice and equity and perfection as the blessings of God and the promised favor flows through Christ to us. Not only the leadership forsaken, the king is now taken. In light of this reality, you might think that it's almost a surprise. You, you read 1 through 20 of chapter 4 and you're just left in shock. And then you get to 21 and you read 21 and 22, these hopeful verses. And they almost come as a bit of a surprise, but I think it's because in light of what we've seen building in these chapters, now the hope of God's people is renewed. If you go back even just to chapter 3, remember it ends with God's people on their face before the Lord, pleading with him to relent from his wrath and repenting of their sins and seeking favor and kindness at his hand. And look at, look at what happens in 21. They seem to be hopeful. In the midst of such judgment and destruction, they, they are not left barren. They are not left hopeless. It says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. Or Uz. Now this is, this, is, this is a bit tongue-in-cheek. The point here is rejoice and be glad while you can. Edom, the Edomites were long-standing opponents of Israel. They were the ones who, Lamentations has been talking about, the neighbors of Jerusalem that were constantly glad because of the judgment of God against Jerusalem and his people and the destruction that they had seen. They were excited about the fact that they had now been laid bare and their city brought to waste and to nothing. And he is saying, rejoice and be glad, you daughters of Edom, you you that dwell in the land of us. Be glad and rejoice and take joy in this while you can, but to you also the cup shall pass. Wow. 
You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, and then he's going to move on to Zion, is accomplished. But back to Edom for just a moment. Rejoice and be glad while you can. Why? Because in accord with the nature and the character of God, the righteous judge, friends, there is coming a day. One of my dear friends in some deep struggles, even this week, even today, he found great hope in this truth as he recounted that to me this week. He said, I'm hopeful that that there's coming a day when everyone will stand before God and he will right every wrong and every iniquity will be exposed and he will take vengeance. Friends, I don't don't mean to be dark and, and I don't think we should glory even in the destruction of the wicked. But friends, it's good news to Christians who suffer at the hands of the wicked. It's good news to Christians who suffer because of the the, the schemes of the evil one and those that fall prey to those schemes. It's good news to Christians to know that God bottles up, as the scripture says, every tear that we shed in our suffering. That they are not wasted. And that we do not suffer in vain. Because there is coming a day when the Lord our God the just judge of all creation, every man will stand before him and give an account of their lives. And he says, the author does here, to these Edomites that have taken such glory in the destruction and the judgment against Israel and Jerusalem. He says, you be glad and rejoice and find joy in this while you can because there is coming a day when the cup of God's judgment against sin will be yours. You know, I was reading one commentator, and he, he put this in terms, perhaps you'll understand that language of the cup being passed to them. Apparently, in their day, they, they didn't make toasts to someone. They passed the cup to someone. And that could be a cup of joy or a cup of hope. But particularly, as we see here, it could also be a cup of judgment or a cup of destruction. The same language, right, we saw with Christ as he prayed in the garden. Father, let this cup pass from me. The, 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 the analogy, that the imagery there of drinking of the cup that God has placed before us. That is the cup of God's judgment against sin. And friends, there's coming a day when all of those who are separated from Christ, like the Edomites, who take glory in the destruction of God's people, who oppress and push them down, that they will... That that the cup will pass to them and they will drink deeply of that judgment. Man, that's a terrifying reality. But here's the hope. Not only that there's coming a day when the, right, when the wrongs will be righted, but look at verse 22. There's hope because their prayers have been heard. Look, look at what he says. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. Praise God. Can you imagine being an Israelite at this, at this time? Can you imagine sitting and beholding the city Jerusalem in all of its ruin? Can you imagine seeing the destruction and the death and the famine that has been undertaken and and experienced? He will keep you in exile no longer. Praise God. Now, friends, does that mean that all of their problems were solved? No. There's still a lot of work to be done. There's still a lot of pain to be felt. I, I I think there's some applicable truth there for our lives as well. 
that though God does not judge our sins forever, that though we experience his mercy and his favor, there are yet still consequences at times that flow from our sin. Doesn't, it doesn't mean that Jesus is some sort of genie where we go rub the lamp and he just makes everything better in our life. That's not the way that it works. There is forgiveness and grace and mercy to be found. He will not set us aside forever if we are his. We will be brought in. We will be restored. But it does not mean that he will fix everything immediately, temporally speaking. But friends, there's hope in knowing that there's coming a day not only when the opponents of God's people will give an account for their iniquities There is hope because in that same day, the people of God's pastor, the sheep of his hand, when Jesus will stand before God on their behalf, saying, I have already borne the punishment that they deserve. We will not be kept in exile forever. And though the difficulties of life may um, last for the night, there is joy and hope and favor before God that comes with the morning. And he closes, but your iniquity, O daughters of Edom, he will punish and he will uncover your sins. This is a fairly plain lament, to be frank with you. And I don't intend to say more than what it says. Friends, let us be careful that we know and acknowledge two things. Number one, no matter how small our sins may seem to us, Let us labor with God's word to understand the offense that they are before God Almighty. It matters. And friends, Jesus bore what Jerusalem experienced and more in order that we would not have to. So let us understand the severity and the seriousness of sin and its consequence, not only for us, but for Jesus who took it for us. But let us also then find great hope that though we suffer now, we will not suffer forever. He will not cast us off forever. He hears our prayers and he has not forgotten. There is hope yet to be found in God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, um, I pray simply tonight that you would help to encourage our hearts to continue to battle and fight sin. We recognize that we will always struggle with sin and transgression as as long as we remain in this body. But God, we, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, and the ministry of your word, you would help us to take, to take those sins seriously. To be, to be broken on account of our sin. To understand the depth of the judgment that Christ had to bear in order that those sins would be paid for. And, and that we might be encouraged then to put those sins to death in our life. To fight. To fight against those sins and to, to be a part of them no more. God, help us in that area. God, we pray where there is sin continuing that you would... Not only bring conviction, but that also you would bring repentance and forgiveness. God, that on account of Christ our Lord, the blood that he shed, the punishment that he bore, that you would wash us and wipe us clean. That we would be acceptable before you. That we would be made right. But God, then as we suffer, as we struggle along in the difficulties of this life, in the difficulties of your providence, 
as we suffer under great tragedy and loss at times, we pray that you would continue to help us find hope in you. To understand that you are slow to anger and quick to show mercy and kindness and favor. God, remind us of the gospel this Christmas season. Help us to understand that though we are sinners, we have been redeemed and we are no more loved in we can never be any more loved than we are right now in Christ. God, help us to understand the gospel that we would continue to believe and continue to trust and continue to hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.